0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds Gummy Clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity, sweet, gummy and tangy, crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
4: It was all about circumstances and opportunity. There was never an inherent link between why South Asians came to this country and then got a corner shop. It wasn't sort of like their rite of passage. That
3: was
5: Babita Sharma talking about the history of the corner shop.
3: This is just one example of many of ballets having rather rough and tortured and almost cruel starts but ending up uh, becoming very polished, symmetrically balanced, transcendent objects. And the Bolshoi is a sort of incubator of several ballets like this, but credit usually is accrued later on in time.
5: And that was Simon Morrison, discussing Russian ballet.
0: You're listening to the History Extra Podcast from BBC History Magazine. we the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward/subscribe. Or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
5: Hello and welcome to our third podcast of December 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Babita Sharma, a BBC journalist who presents BBC World News. Her latest broadcasting venture is a new documentary for BBC Four entitled Booze, Beans and Bargies, The History of the Corner Shop which offers a window into the lives of Asian immigrants in Britain over recent decades. Our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with Babita in London recently to find out more.
0: So Babita, you're presenting a new programme for BBC4 called Booze, Beans and Bargies, which is about the history of the corner shop. Why were you so interested in this subject and why did you want to get this project off the ground?
4: I am the very proud daughter of shopkeepers. And uh, all those stereotypes that are out there about Asian shopkeepers, yes, I am a walking uh, example of that because I um, was born and brought up in this country to uh, Asian parents who came over the 1960s and they too had a corner shop. In fact, they had three. Um, And I grew up uh, living on top of one of our shops and uh, the corner shop is part of my life for, what, 15 years. And I it's now that I'm a bit older that I kind of understand that whole part of my life more and then realized it's fascinating and not just for me being um, the daughter of shopkeepers but then I realized when talking to other people about it that everybody knows their shopkeeper everyone knows their local corner shop and then it started to kind of unravel from there because I realized that in our space which was our family home was also somewhere that other people could identify with where incredible things happen that you don't think are going to happen. It's like a bit of a magic kingdom of not only, you know, sweets, fags, booze and papers. um, It's also about people and conversation and the art of conversation. And uh, as I started to kind of explore it a little bit more, not only my personal experiences, but talking to other people and then shopkeepers up and down the country, I thought, yes, this is brilliant. Because it's kind of like that unsung hero. Of British life, which is why I wanted to shine a light on it. So, why do you think that the corner shop is such a good lens for looking at British social history? Well, it, it tells you everything you need to know about what's happening in the country at a particular time. So, if you walk into your corner shop today, I will guarantee you that you will have an opportunity to hear lots of different voices and conversations taking place on the shop floor. And if you look around, you'll also be able to get a lot about what is happening in that city or town just by spending half an hour in a corner shop, if you've got time, even five minutes does it. And I think that it is a brilliant example of, you know, you people pick up papers or they read the news or speak to politicians or find out what's happening in, in their world through different means. But I think people don't realise if you walk into a corner shop, speak to your shopkeeper, uh, you can find out so much about what's going on in your world, down your street, uh, gossip, lots of... Um, Things that are happening, I don't know, traffic cones that have just been put in that weren't there yesterday. Uh, just speaking to your shopkeeper, who probably is from a very diverse background, that also tells you so much about the cycle of immigration in this country. And it's all there down your road. So it's like a running, living archive of a community. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so diverse and it's not just restricted to the south of England or the north of England. It is everywhere across the United Kingdom. And a majority of them in the past have been owned by Asian shopkeepers like my mum and dad. But everywhere, you know, I used to work in the Channel Islands as a journalist for the BBC. There you will find your local corner shop. There you'll find an Asian shopkeeper. Uh, You can go to Aberdeen and some of the villages near there and you will have the same experience. So it's fascinating that it is as common as it might be a GP surgery. Mm-hmm. So where do you first find the emergence of the corner shop? It's it's interesting when you look back at uh, how it evolved, really, because the corner shop has sort of always been part of British life, sort of around 1920s, 1930s, but it's not the corner shop that we know today. So the corner shop back then was very much about... Uh, a customer-shopkeeper-service relationship where if you needed your butter that was delivered by um, the milkman, you know, or you needed soap, because there were no pharmacies there, There there was no refrigeration system, there was no hairdressers or anything, so it was all kind of compiled into one place. You'd get your butter, you'd get your meat, you'd get your soaps, you'd get your scissors, you'd get everything in this tiny little space. And that then evolved as what we know it to be is the corner shop today, which is very much by design kind of post-war Britain when there was a restructuring of the landscape of how we know terraced houses to be. There was a massive change in Britain at the time, kind of around Industrial Revolution as well, where things started to change and you got these rows of terraced houses and conveniently, and it makes sense, doesn't it? You'd put a shop at the bottom of your streets. And again, that would be the one place where you would get everything you needed so your butchers, your bakers, your grocers. And that's sort of how the corner shop then evolved way before we know supermarkets today. And something very interesting that you touch on in the
0: programme is how um, the role that they played in World War Two during
4: rationing. It, you were only able to buy... certain amount of milk or butter or eggs and the corner shop was the place that had the quota where you would go to to get it you wouldn't be getting it from anywhere else and that shopkeeper would know no actually mrs smith you could only have these many ounces of this that and the other and it it sort of elevated the shopkeeper to this sort of very important place in society i think for me where they were telling you what you could have They were keeping the books. They were weighing the goods. It was very different to what we have now. And then that then meant that there was a level of trust that was then cemented between the consumer and the shopkeeper.
0: And as you say, their their roles were many and varied beyond just being a shop.
4: Yeah, I think they became the place where you would have a conversation. For many people, it was about getting out the house. You know, this is before TV. Yes, we had the wireless, but when you wanted to get out and have a conversation and you've got recession and harsh economic times, you might just take a little wander down your road, speak to the local shopkeeper who would know everything that was going on in your community. He would also, he or she would also give you what you needed, goods wise. And it became like an an event, an outing. And you'd know you'd probably be able to spend a good 20 minutes, half an hour there with your family and then bump into neighbours and all sorts of people. Do you think that's maybe something that we've lost with the rise
0: of the self-service shop, as it was called then, which we now know as the supermarket, which to us seems completely natural and we take completely take for
4: granted now well you know i work for bbc news and making this documentary we uncovered lots of archive from news clips we're so sensationalist aren't we as journalists saying it's the demise of the corner shop Um, britain has changed in the 1990s you'll never see a corner shop again and here we are in 2016 having just finished this documentary and filmed that we've been up and down the country going into corner shops and they are thriving they are doing well so Yes, well, I think we have lost that art of conversation which the corner shop so beautifully had since 1930s and 40s Britain, but it's it's become a different conversation now. So really the central theme probably within the program
0: is the link between corner shops and Asian immigration in post-war Britain. Why do you think those two things are so intrinsically linked and how did they become so? Well, it's interesting because you've put that link together.
4: And I think in that documentary, we put it out there and I say it. You know, I'm the daughter of Asian shopkeepers. Uh, There's a stereotype, tick, tick, tick. You know, how many Asians do you know? And then somewhere in the family, you might get somebody that owned a shop. But actually what we found with this documentary is, yes, it is very common, but there is no particular reason why. Which is intriguing in itself. Yeah, it was all about circumstances and opportunity. There was never an inherent link between why South Asians came to this country and then got a corner shop. It wasn't sort of like their rite of passage. Perhaps a rite of passage to get into the community, but there was never a particular trade that said that they would be particularly good shopkeepers and maybe that person from the West Indies wouldn't. It was completely because of opportunity and circumstance. And I think that when... My parents' generation came here in the 1960s. They came to fill manual labour work in factories like my dad did. He was a, a spray painter for Ford, the car company. My mum worked in a biscuit factory. But then after that, they decided that they wanted to do better and swap those jobs for something else. But then there weren't so many job opportunities. And of course, this was a time where that, there weren't that many ethnic minorities in communities here. So there was an issue of discrimination. So why not work for yourself? And how do you do that? You get a little base, a little shop where you can sell goods. You don't have to have a massive skill set to do it. You just have to be able to be willing to work hard. And that's what they did. So it's kind of, in
0: many ways, it's a way of getting freedom in a society that was slightly
4: prejudiced. Well, I say slightly, probably more than... Absolutely. And even the word prejudice, I mean, people did not know Asian people or black people in Britain in those days. They had never had experience of them. So I think everyone was finding their feet. And yes, of course, there was prejudice because they're saying that these Asians would come here and take our jobs. But I think that that narrative was formed. And I think for many ethnic minorities like my mum and dad, they thought, well, why don't we work for ourselves? Why would we work for a boss? work all those ridiculous long hours that shopkeepers did. Why don't we try and do it for ourselves? And then that's kind of how The Link was born. But it was almost by chance. I don't think there was a big calculated decision to do it. It just came because that seemed obvious.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you think it's fair to say that in many ways they helped Asian
4: families who'd just moved to Britain integrate into societies? I don't know if, yes, I think it did help. But it also, I mean, because of the design that we talked about, whether you had these terraced houses and shops were at the bottom of these long row of houses, whoever was going to take on that shop would be propelled into the community. And so if you're going to get an Asian family taking over their local shop, then they are there. Whether or not they're integrating or want to be assimilated, they are there right slap bang in the middle of community life and i think that that meant that they had to be part of the community people had to get used to their asian shopkeepers or their polish shopkeepers as the case might be now you know it's it's by design that you've got ethnic minorities right in the center of your working life i think but as the documentary points out it wasn't necessarily
0: an always an easy process there was a lot of tension and difficulty for many shopkeepers
4: yeah can you imagine waking up at five half five in the morning shutting up shop at I don't know 11 o'clock at night uh seven days a week although they weren't supposed to open on a Sunday but they did um and possibly having a family like in our case it was me and my sisters my mum had three girls running the shop by herself or my dad did night shift at miles chocolate factory so those kind of hours are grueling and exhausting and you're always there to greet the customer with a smile on your face when you open up at 6 30 in the morning and shut the shop so late feed the kids and stack the shelves do the cash and carry runs it is an exhausting life and i and i don't know how many people realize that when they walk into their corner shop they just know it's always open They can get whatever they need, but it truly is exhausting. And if you put on top of that the time period that we're looking at here, which is sort of 1970s, 1980s Britain, where things were very different, so you would encounter racism. You would encounter a culture of them and us. Uh, There was definitely, I think, a sense of wariness about communities because people didn't know what these foreigners, as they would term my family, were all about. Mm -hmm. They look a bit different. They eat differently. You know, they didn't have curry mall back then. It was. It's only now that we know all about how Indian food has become part of British culture. But everything was new. Everybody was trying this out for the first time. And I think in that world, when you're working so hard, you've got to be pretty determined that you're going to make a success of it because it's not easy. And
0: the documentary does highlight that there were many cases of vandalism and aggression because of Shopkeepers'
4: race. Absolutely. And we spoke to um, Nitin Ganatra, who is an actor for EastEnders, and he was telling me how his parents had a corner shop in Coventry, right round the corner from the BNP headquarters, the British National Party, uh, a far right group. And you think, oh my gosh, like, did your mum and dad not know that? They actually opened up their shop round the corner from the BNP. But you know, the BNP came in. And they bought what they wanted to buy from the shop. Again, there is that service goods that they are delivering. And as a shopkeeper, you've got to kind of grin and bear it. But not easy when you're going to be called all kinds of names and, uh, yeah, have your shop vandalised or graffiti all over it. Uh, yeah, he recalls that very well about how um, getting a kicking, him and his brothers on the way to school, is kind of part of everyday life. Thankfully, we didn't have that in Reading. Mm-hmm. But um, that just goes to show that it's, it wasn't easy for many of these families here.
0: But also later in the 80s, the Asian shopkeeper became almost a political symbol used by the
4: Conservative Party. Margaret Thatcher became this person who often used the Asian shopkeeper as a symbol of all that was right and good with Britain. And it was a political narrative that I think worked for the Tory party. Did the Asians get anything out of it? I'm not sure because there was this feeling that, you know, you can come to Britain, it's a meritocratic society and you can do really well here. That's sort of the poster campaign that I think Maggie wanted to paint in the 1980s. Was that the case? Mm, I don't know. I mean, let's think about why Asians took on shops. They took it on because they wanted to work for themselves. They were being discriminated in the marketplace, in the workplace, not being able to get other jobs. So that's why they then moved towards shops. So if it really was a meritocratic society, why did Asians keep going to the shop? Why were they not being able to sort of go higher up the mobility, social mobility ladder and become doctors and GPs and lawyers? They did do that eventually, but it wasn't as clear cut as I think the Tory party made out in the 1980s.
0: So how do you think in that later period, um, the shops changed and evolved after the post-war period when they were being taken over by a lot of Asian shopkeepers. How do you think that impacted
4: what they became? Well, I think in the 1980s Britain that the shop was sort of doing brilliantly. It was the boom years for many shopkeepers. My parents did particularly well at that time. But then things started to change. So what, the, what a number of migrant communities did was take on the corner shop that was sort of dying a death in 1940s Britain. You know, it was closing up. People didn't want to take it on anymore. Asians sort of rejuvenated the corner shop. Again, gave it a bit more life, extended their hours. Uh, It became a go-to place for lots of people. But then think about 1990s Britain and the change in trading laws on a Sunday and the rise of supermarkets, the fact that petrol stations could now sell bags and booze and papers meant that things started to really shift. So the Asian shopkeeper was king for 80s and 90s, still is today, but they've had to face, they've faced a lot of stiff competition from what I call the big boys, the big players on the street.
0: And really that's meant that shopkeepers have had to change the
4: face of the service they offer. I think... Yes and no, because you can still go into a corner shop in Britain today and it might look like something from the 1970s or 80s, depending on where you're going. You might get Christmas decorations all year round or fireworks in February um, because the Asian shopkeeper, you know, will provide you with everything you need. So I think you still get that kind of shop. But I think that the Asian shopkeepers and any shopkeeper, even the Polish shopkeepers there, I've realised that you have to try and provide everything that you can. So many of them have extended their corner shops to be like mini markets. Others have diversified and, and provided like takeaway food there to try and counteract the competition. But at the end of the day, I don't think anybody anymore is going to their corner shop to do their monthly shop. It's that, that has completely changed. So they are very much reliant now on passing trade. So it is the staples, your milk, fags, booze and papers. The programme
0: talks about how shopkeepers have for a long time been really a staple of british comedy and they've been seen as a an inherently british figure why do you think they're so ripe for kind of comedic exploitation it's a funny place
4: (laughs) you walk into your (laughs) corner shop it is a funny place i can think of every day of my childhood something would happen and it would be horrendously tragic or awful or brilliantly funny and it would just be how you would view it. So I remember my dad telling me about how at the counter there was just bars and stacks of chocolates, and a lot of the kids from school would come in at about 3.15, and they would hide their school satchels over the chocolate bars and then try and nick them with their hand underneath. And Dad would be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they'd be like, nothing, Mr Sharma, it's fine. He'd be like, we know what you're doing. And, I mean, brilliant. Because you think you'd get away with it, but we knew exactly what was going on. And I think that that, coupled with some of the harsher realities of corner shop life, which is the racism and the terminology of packy shop that used to be banded about a lot in 1980s Britain, sometimes still is today. Unfortunately, I think when you look at all that, it's such a colourful, rich, messed up place that provides so much material for comedy humour. It's a place as well where you get all walks of life and I guess you you can easily see how British society is changing when you've got everybody from all walks of life coming in? Absolutely. I mean, when I was five or six, I think it was, where I used to sit on the shop counter. Mum didn't really know what to do with me. So I would just sit there and probably eat my way through the su- sweets. But I remember John, who was a builder, he would come in and he'd buy his son and he'd talk about the headlines. And then you'd get, a, I remember a supply teacher, and I think her name was Emily, and she'd buy a woman's own. Yet these two people would probably never associate with each other outside of the shop. And then here they are on the shop floor talking to mum and talking about the headlines as he's looking at page three and she wants to have a different conversation. And it's all happening there within this three-minute exchange. And there's me just going, what on earth is going on here? But you're right, it's, it's that beautiful, diverse, crazy place where all these people are coming in for whatever reason where never the twain shall meet anywhere else. As you say, people have been heralding the death of the corner shop for
0: for decades now. Why do you think it has managed to survive through war and through the rise of supermarkets and complete changes in um, the cultural makeup of Britain? Why do you think it's managed to
4: stay put? That whole time? I think as long as you get the beautiful immigration cycle in this country, you are going to get somebody that is willing to take on the long hours of the corner shop. So I'm a classic example of how we have assimilated into this country, proudly so. I'm a journalist. I've got other friends that are lawyers, doctors, writers, actors. They don't want to take on their mum and dad's corner shop. But now you see a different face behind the shop, which might be your Polish shopkeeper or your Vietnamese nail bar who are willing to do the hours that that my mum and dad did. So once you've got that willingness and the hard work, you will always have, I think, some form of corner shop. And also, I think that in the last five years, there's been a sense of nostalgia. People are missing that interaction with their shopkeeper and the lost art of conversation. They want it back. They want to support their local businesses. They want to go into their grocers. They want to go into their butchers. They want to maybe not necessarily go to those big supermarkets. And it's about having that conscience about what a corner shop can bring to society. And I think that that's, now being celebrated again. I do not think it is going anywhere anytime soon. I know that we thought it would not be here 2016. I think it will be here in another 50 years time. It just might be very different and it might not be run by Asians or Poles. Who knows? Who knows who might be taking on the corner shop? But it will definitely be here in what kind of guys? Who knows? but it will still be doing a service which is what we need, which is a quick fix to grab the bag of sugar that we've just run out of in the kitchen cupboard.
5: That was Babita Sharma. Booze, Beans and Bargies, the history of the corner shop, is due to air on Monday the 19th of December on BBC4. In the meantime, our Christmas edition is currently on sale. In this month's issue, we have articles on the Charge of the Light Brigade, Henry VIII's Six Wives, Black Power, the attack on Pearl Harbour and the historical antecedents of Donald Trump. You can get hold of our Christmas issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription and you live in the UK, there's still time to take advantage of our Christmas offer where you can choose a free book worth £25, as well as receiving a discount of up to 33% on the shop price. If you'd like to take up this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP211. The offer will end on the 31st of December this year.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra p.com slash History Extra.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
2: gem of a detour. Our
5: second interview this week is with Simon Morrison. Professor of Music at Princeton University. Simon is the author of a new book, Bolshoi Confidential, which charts the tumultuous history of the Russian ballet from the late 18th century until the present day. He spoke to our Acting Deputy Editor, Sue Wingrove.
1: Simon, your latest book, Bolshoi Confidential, is described as a magisterial portrait of the art, intrigue, and politics buffeting Russia's great cultural institution, the Bolshoi Ballet. Could you start by describing its beginnings in the 18th century, please?
3: Sure. Um, One of the most fascinating chapters in the history of the Bolshoi is the first one, uh, which concerns how the theatre was created and how, in fact, The person who was responsible for building the theater and for operating it was able to recruit uh, sufficient dancers, actors, and singers to put on various entertainments. Um, The person in question was English. Um, He was a magician, uh, a diplomat, a math teacher. He was many different things. His name was Michael Maddox. And he traveled extensively throughout Western Europe and eventually ended up through Eastern Europe at the court of Catherine the Great, where he performed various shows and did some tutoring in mathematics. And eventually, seeing an opportunity in Moscow, uh, south of St. Petersburg, uh, to open up a public playhouse, he petitioned. Uh, through the good offices of a prince named Prince Urasov to open up a theater. Uh, this was the first public theater that Moscow had. Uh, there were plenty of theaters being operated on various estates, serf or slave theaters, but this was the first public playhouse. Uh, but Michael Maddox um, was somebody who was, um, well, rather dissolute, I guess, uh, rather derelict with finances, and he soon uh, ran into financial trouble. Uh, it's fair to say that he embezzled funds. He was a bit of a swindler. And in order to bail himself out and bail out his little playhouse, he um, ended up turning for help to the only bank in town, which was uh, operated by uh, an orphanage. Uh, Strange as it might seem, at this point in time, Moscow's only big bank was the orphanage, which was also a pawn shop. And in exchange for one of several loans uh, that got him out of uh, trouble, including uh, physical danger, owing to the fact that he owed a lot of money, uh, to boyers, merchants in Moscow. Uh, he was able to obtain this loan on the condition that he also take into his theater, which was basically a vaudeville house, uh, some of the more talented pupils at the orphanage. These were children who um, were being trained in the arts, among other things, in order to sort of elevate themselves from urchin status. These were abandoned children, and some of them were very talented indeed. And he took in some of the dancers and some of the singers, and there began the Bolshoi Ballet.
1: So, at the beginning, they weren't performing what we would understand as as ballet today?
3: Not at all. Um, I actually, one of the things I discovered uh, in writing this book is that um, kind of a subtext or pretext for much of the gloriousness of the Bolshoi Ballet and Opera is the fact that its roots lay in public entertainments of a sort of song and dance vaudevillian variety, and that this was a theater over its long and distinguished history that tried very hard to cater to the masses. And this is something that, you know, persisted through the Soviet period, where for ideological reasons, actually creating works that appealed to the masses was um, expedient. So when I discovered, for example, that uh, Don Quixote, you know, a great canonic ballet, considered a grand ballet, existed in two versions, one created specifically for Moscow and then one created for St. Petersburg, I was quite surprised and delighted to discover that the Don Quixote for Moscow was one that involved a lot of improv routines, a lot of sort of vaudevillian Um, routines and improvisations that um, really defy the conventions of what we think of as classical ballet. And uh, this uh, element, uh, this showiness, this element of audience appeal, I think, is something that uh, defines the Bolshoi style to the present day.
1: So they were really um, targeting their audience um, in quite a specific way then,
3: Yes, and um, for example, with Don Quixote, the choreographer, the great choreographer, Marius Petipa, he was in Moscow for a month or two, and he created this ballet. He set the dances uh, using uh, the students and professionals at the Bolshoi Ballet at the time. But he knew that uh, for Moscow, audiences were different. This was not a court audience. This was a public uh, merchant class audience of different ranks, and also the public could come. And this was an audience that really expected dazzle and entertainment and fun and variety. Uh, There was a brilliant, ingenious uh, technician, machinist at the theater named Karl Waltz, and he was able to do all sorts of wonderful special effects. And these, um, along with the uh, quasi-improvised, anything-can-go-anything-can-happen style of the Bolshoi, really defined the original Don Quixote from Moscow. But the version that was performed in St. Petersburg was one that was classicalized. It became more of a court ballet and more something we associate with traditional classical ballet along the lines of, say, what Lincoln Kirsten codified in the 20th century. I would also say that in the Soviet period, something strange and I think quite beautiful happened. Um, there was an attempt for political reasons to create ballets uh, that you know um, broadcast, communicated certain ideological principles. And to make sure that these works were understood, um, audiences, uh, including workers, farmers, people from the streets, were brought in, Boston in, to the Bolshoi, and they were given questionnaires to fill out, to see whether or not they understood the plot, whether or not they understood the gestures, whether or not the focused dancers were focused enough, and so on and so forth. And these commentaries, these answers that the... A regular person provided on these questionnaires, often in very simple language, often with crayons and pencils, um, ended up actually informing uh, the rehearsals and the development of some of the great ballets. And one of them was by Shostakovich called The Bright Stream. It was a ballet about life on the collective farm. It got Shostakovich into a lot of political trouble, but the initial rehearsals were one that was very much uh, catered to the masses.
1: In your book, you explore how the Bolshoi has um, really changed over 250 years throughout periods of political upheaval from the SARS to to Putin. Could you tell us a little bit more about its relationship with the various regimes? You've mentioned how it was very specific during the Russian Revolution re-period. What about the other periods?
3: Sure. Um, As soon as the theatre became uh, public, and as soon as, right at the beginning, Michael Maddox needed a loan from the state, from the court, to get himself out of financial jeopardy, the theatre became uh, one whose repertoire was to some degree monitored uh, by the government. And this persisted over the course of the 19th century, when, at different periods in time, the existence of the ballet was called into question. There was attempts to liquidate it. Uh, It was threatened because of the fact it didn't make much money compared to opera, and certainly compared to Italian opera. But um, it was used um, specifically for coronation ceremonies. And one of the czars, uh, the penultimate czar, uh, Tsar Alexander III, wanted to cultivate a Russian art, a homegrown art, ballet and opera, that he could be proud of. And he rescued uh, the ballet from bankruptcy, from elimination, by actually having it put on um, a series of allegorical entertainment associated with his coronation. So these to do with the nature of his rule, uh, the vast expanse of the Russian Empire, battles won, battles lost, the kind of things that the country could produce in terms of minerals, exports, and so on and so forth. And these types of allegorical entertainments were put on. And this became um, a habit for the Bolshoi ballet towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th. Um, Of course, with the Russian Revolution, The Bolsheviks, the people who took over uh, the Russian government um, in a very improvised, chaotic way in 1917 and 1918, they looked at this theater as very expensive uh, to heat. Um, to maintain. They looked at this theater as a relic of the imperial past. They looked at the entertainments that it put on as very decadent. And they looked at it as something that perhaps needed to be abolished or at least repurposed. And for a time, the theater was turned into a kind of political convention hall, convention center, and many important early developments in the history of the Soviet government uh, were ratified there. Um, And after the revolution, Lenin actually decided um, against the advice of some of his and counselors, that the theater should in fact survive. owing went to the fact that he recognized that the Bolsheviks could not simply be revolutionaries forever. They needed to be, at least to uh, give themselves an image of being stable, uh, give the country a sense of stability and also give the country a sense of historical continuity. And so this theater as an archive in Lenin's terms was allowed to survive, but um, the order came down from him and from later on from Stalin, Uh, for the theater to start producing the right kind of entertainments, the right kind of art for the masses. And by the right kind of art, we mean art that really embodied ideals of Marxist Leninism, ideals associated with an official aesthetic known as socialist realism. And um, for the theater, this this was a very hard thing to accomplish, specifically in ballet, because when you think about ballet, it doesn't have words, um, except on the program and in the plot. And it's very obviously very hard to communicate political ideas through gesture. But tried and tried again, they did. And eventually, there was a ballet that was created called The Red Poppy, uh, which had to do with Soviet sailors meeting their communist counterparts in China and saving a concubine from bondage. And this work, after numerous revisions, was actually given approval to be performed from Stalin himself, because it was politically expedient. And thus, the first great Soviet ballet was created.
1: And how much remains of that ballet? I mean, is that something that could be recreated these days?
3: Yeah, the the Red Poppy, because it was given approval for performance from the head of the government, uh, was immediately performed hundreds of times and uh, existed in many guises. It was revised, it was performed in various theatres throughout the Soviet Union, not only the Bolshoi. Um, the title was changed to the red flower against the, to satisfy protests of Chinese communists who actually thought calling a ballet the red proppy and drawing attention to the opium trade in China was an insult. Um, but then after the... Cultural revolution in China and the frame of relationships between the Soviet Union and China, the 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 original title was restored for this ballet. And it persisted in the repertoire. Uh, it persisted in the repertoire because it was at once very political and very, you know, Soviet in terms of its ideological content. But still very traditional in the sense that it had a wonderful dream scene, in this case fueled by opium. It had diverse kind of national dances. It had a bit of Americana thrown into the mix because the Americans that were showing up in China were bad guys like the British. And um, so it had this kind of old style, um, you know... Ballet of the Nation's quality, this old-style divertissement quality to it, as well as actually getting across this very simple plot. And the music uh, by Reinhold Glier was uh, in a nice light style, which was very appealing. And to top it all off, it had astonishing sets. I mean, what better than to have this huge ship pull into a dock on the set stage of the Bolshoi Theater and have this huge... Uh, cast of characters: sailors, um, people from various, you know, places, because this was an international port near Shanghai. So it was incredibly, um, you know, effective and um, visually stunning. And it survived. And we haven't seen it for a while, but I I don't put it past, say, Alexei Ratmansky, uh, who is the former Bolshoi Ballet artistic director now in New York, to actually revive this work. It's easy to revive, and it would still appeal to audiences today.
1: And um, what about later on in the 20th century? When did the Bolshoi start to tour abroad?
3: The Bolshoi started to tour uh, abroad After World War II, and initially went to Paris and places in Eastern Europe before finally ending up in England, in the UK and London in the later 1950s. Um, This tour was a sensation. Um, It featured Galina Ulanova performing Romeo and Juliet and several other works. She was already in her 40s at this period in time, but she really danced her heart out and seemed to audience goers at the time to British critics to be just a vision of youth, a vision of teenagehood. Um, The first American tour came in the late 1950s, 1959, and the drama around that surrounded whether or not um, the great ballerina, Maya Plasetskaya, would be allowed to tour. And one of the things that I unearthed for this book, uh, which is very dramatic and poignant at the same time, has to do with her writing several letters to Nikita Khrushchev, uh, really begging, pleading for permission to actually make this international trip. She was such a star uh, that she was considered a risk for defection. And of course, uh, as we know, there were a lot of defections from uh, Russian ballet to the West uh, during the Cold War. Uh, She was a risk, uh, but she pledged to Nikita Khrushchev in personal letters that she would actually come back that she had just married a, a wonderful composer named Rodion Shadrin, and that was a good reason for her to come back, uh, And that she was a dutiful servant of the state. And she made this plea several times in several letters. Um, and uh, eventually she was allowed to go, kind of at the last minute, and they had to change the programs to include her name. And she returned. And she returned despite the fact that she had extraordinary grievances against the Soviet state. Uh, this was somebody who lost her parents, lost her daddy, lost her mom, Uh, when she was a child to the Stalinist repressions. But nonetheless, she came back. Um, She came back and Khrushchev greeted her, and as Maya Plisetskaya reported in her memoirs, he he congratulated her with words like, you know, good girl, uh, you didn't embarrass me. And she became really uh, the greatest uh, Bolshoi dancer of the 20th century. And by the end of her long career, Uh, She was effortlessly international despite remaining a Soviet citizen. Uh, She could go anywhere she liked. She was somebody who was involved in fashion development, uh, commercials. She was really, really a media celebrity, met Kennedy in the United States. And despite, you know, being at home, uh, she was everywhere at the same time. And she always claimed that that stage, the Bolshoi stage, was the greatest stage in the world. And having been there and seen its recent incarnation, I can agree with her. And that was where she, despite everything around her, she felt totally free.
1: So Nureyev defected uh, from the Kirov, uh, most famously, in 1961. But did anyone from the Bolshoi actually defect?
3: No, um, that's remarkable. Uh, all of the great defections, Makarova, Barishnikov, uh, Nureyev, um and a few others, uh, to Britain, to the United States, to Israel. Uh, these were Bol- the Kirov defections, not Bolshoi defections. And one of the things I discovered was there was tighter control um, around the Bolshoi, because it was in Moscow, and tighter administrative control, certainly during the reign of the artistic director, Yuri Grigorovich. And so this was harder to do. Uh, tours were more closely uh, vetted. Um, people, you know, the basically the security apparatus, the KGB, would look closely at the types of dancers and their backgrounds and whether or not they were risk for defection, whether or not they had any sort of compromising details in their biography, whether or not somebody else had denounced them, uh, to see whether or not, in fact, they were eligible for touring. It seems that these kind of controls were looser in Leningrad, St. Petersburg during this period in time, And one of the things I noticed um, in looking at the sort of political correspondence with regard to the Bolshoi and the Kirov was that after these defections, specifically after Nureyev left, uh, there was real hell to pay uh, for allowing that to happen and a real shakeup and liquidation of a lot of bureaucrats at the top of the theaters. But the Bolshoi did not suffer those kind of losses. The greatest risk was, again, Plisetskaya, uh, but she was strangely patriotic.
1: Now... Let's turn to more recent years and um, in 2013 the ballet hit the news for the worst reasons when the artistic director had acid thrown in his face. Um, Obviously this shocked the world but it wasn't the first time the ballet was beset by violence and scandal. Was this the lowest point in its history?
3: I'd say in today's media culture, where news like this uh, becomes instantly international, this was the lowest point. Uh, one of the things when I got involved with the Bolshoi and was interested in writing about the theater, and as a historian, I immediately thought about you know spending time in the archives as well as talking with uh, you know living witnesses as to what is going on in the theater. Um, one of the things I wanted to find out was whether or not this particular incident, uh, which was ghastly, uh, medieval in a sense that would give the medieval a bad name. A truly barbaric, whether or not it had pretext, uh, whether or not things like this had happened in the past, or whether or not this was simply a sort of one-off uh, horribleness. And yeah, there were other things that happened that were terrible. There was um, a case of a double suicide that took place during a performance where two girls, uh, for strange reasons to do with romantic intrigue and perhaps narcotics, uh, jumped to their deaths from the rafters of the theater during a performance. There were uh, numerous really terrible incidents in the 19th century to do with the sexual exploitation of dancers. This is not something that's typical only of the Bolshoi theater, but happened in other places. It happened in Paris, for example. It happened in London. It happened in the United States. But uh, the details of some of these cases were really harrowing and kind of hard for me to process and to write up. And so it, to some degree, put what happened in 2013 into context. But Um, the circumstances around 2013 were very different in the sense that this was uh, a period in time in which the theater had, I think, really loose um, kind of um, governance, if you will. And there was a lot of infighting amongst the dancers. And this particular crime uh, was carried out by a disgruntled, rather hot-headed dancer who um, had it in for Sergei Feeling owing to the fact um, that Feeling had appointed himself the head of the dancers' union, as well as being the artistic director. So this was a conflict of interest. And the dancer in question, the hot-headed youth, uh, Pavel Dmitrychenko, he himself wanted to be the head of the union. And so this conflict um, played out over several months. And in the end, uh, Dmitrichenko decided he wanted to rough up Mr. Feeling, teach him a lesson, and he did so by hiring an ex-con. And that ex-con took this shortcut of basically diluting, or rather distilling, uh, car battery acid, and and splashing it into Feeling's face. And um, Dmitrychenko went to jail for organizing this crime, as did his accomplices, as did the acid thrower. Uh, Dmitrychenko spent almost three years in prison. He is now out of prison. He is back in Moscow. He is living not far from Feeling. And perversely, strangely enough, he's angling to actually return to the Bolshoi theater and perhaps even return to the stage. Um, and that, I find, one of these sort of bizarre slippages, twists, that show that, at least within this space, the Bolshoi, there's not a lot of respect or acknowledgement of the division between art and life. And these kind of preternatural, bizarre events um, can happen and do happen a lot. And one of, I make this point simply because the person who organized this crime, uh, Pavel Dmitrychenko, was at the time of his arrest, he was performing in a ballet called Ivan the Terrible, which was choreographed by Yuri Grigorovich. And the real Ivan the Terrible was somebody who dispatched the architects of the beautiful St. Basil's Cathedral on Red Square by, according to myth, uh, having them blinded. And so you have this strange, um, real-life um, parallel to that macabre mythological event uh, in the case of Sergei Feeling.
1: And has the... Bolshoi Ballet been able to put that episode behind it? How does it stand as an organisation today?
3: Yeah, the the theatre has withstood many different tumults. Um, it's uh, it's an organization that's huge, it's massive, it's very complicated. And I was sort of hanging around the theater and talking a lot with the press attaché of the theater, the very brilliant Katerina Novakova during his events. And uh, the theater withstood it all. Um, and, you know, one of the things she said to me after I asked, you know, I don't understand why in this country, where the media is controlled, Why um, this kind of gossip fest uh, is allowed to continue and that all the television stations are talking about it in Russia and news outlets and never mind the web, why this is allowed. And she basically said that, you know, strange that right now, actually, politically, no one really gives a damn uh, about this scandal in the ballet world. Uh, there were other things that were preoccupying the higher echelons of the theater. But nonetheless, um, the after a while, um, after this scandal persisted and there were more firings and more denunciations and this sort of dirty laundry was aired um, with ever-increasing dirtiness over several months, the uh, general director of the theater was released, uh, Iksanov. He was let go and a new person was brought in. Uh, the very experienced, no-nonsense Vladimir Urin. And then uh, because uh, feeling was so terribly injured and compromised in his duties, uh, he was he ran out his contract and a new artistic director was brought in, Makhar um, Vaziev. And right now I would say that the, the ballet um, is stable, um, that the um, tempests have been contained, and it's back to producing a mixture of um, homegrown, uh, traditional Russian ballets, along with some new commissions. And um, it's hard to say where it'll go. Um, but I've always felt, and I argue in this book, that um, how the theatre goes in terms of its direction, in terms of its political purpose, in terms of its gloriousness, well, is very much a reflection of the political situation.
1: It does sound very much like a survivor, the Bolshoi ballet. Um, let's end by hearing about one or two of the highest points in its history, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Sure. Um That's an interesting question, the highest point in the history. One of the things I found out about the Bolshoi was that it had nurtured uh, some of the greatest ballets in the repertoire. But oftentimes, these ballets had gained fame on the road or in other venues. And perhaps the most interesting example of that is the most interesting ballet in terms of its fame, in terms of ticket sales, which is Swan Lake. This is a work that has a strange and troubled and long history Uh, It was a work that involved a composer, a professional composer of opera and symphony named Tchaikovsky, taking a chance and deciding, because he needed the money, to actually try and write a ballet score. Uh, This was not something that professional composers tended to do. Um, Usually ballet scores were written by in-house musicians who kind of mixed and matched pieces from other composers or just cobbled together something that was sufficient for providing dancers with phrases and counts to get them through a plot and to get them through various dazzling solos. But Tchaikovsky, uh, at this period in time, uh, when he took on this commission, he um, decided that he would educate himself in the art. Um, He went to a few ballets, he borrowed some scores from the library, and he quickly put together the score of Swan Lake, really for a pittance. But again, he was somebody at this point in time was kind of needing the income. This is what he uh, pointed out in letters to friends. And um, the score was rejected by the dancers because it was symphonic. It was not traditional ballet music. And uh, it was you know, reworked somewhat for performance. And when it was performed, um, it was performed in a guise that is completely unfamiliar from the Swan Lake of today. Uh, that is to say, there was no black swan. The ending was very, very bitter, very, very dark. It involved this traumatic flood on the stage, washing everybody away. There was both a plot and a subplot There were dances that were imported from a ballet based on Jules Verne's 80 Days Around the World. The choreography was considered to be lackluster. It was by a Czech figure named uh, Reisinger. And the dancer for which the show was intended, Lydia Gaetan, she actually refused to be part of it owing to the fact that the music was too complicated and she didn't like it. And so other dancers were brought in. But nonetheless, this show took place. And Tchaikovsky was rather bemused by the whole thing. Uh, he showed up for rehearsals and he didn't quite understand how his score was being rehearsed. Uh, his patroness, Nadezhda Von Meck, when she saw it, she actually noted that it looked very dreary. Uh, Very looked very underfunded, but it hung on in the repertoire for a couple of seasons. Then it was reworked by another choreographer. And um, that was seemingly it. Um, 1877, the ballet had been hanging around. It wasn't really distinguished. It was basically destined for oblivion. But then later on in his career, uh, Tchaikovsky, recognized as a great Russian talent and world talent, was given a chance to do um, a second ballet, which became Sleeping Beauty. That was a fabulous court ballet sensation in St. Petersburg, and the choreographer Petipa actually decided that maybe it would be worth actually looking at this first ballet by Tchaikovsky, Swan Lake. And he got in there, he got underneath the notes, he repurposed the score, he changed the ending to make it a little bit more optimistic, got rid of the subplot got rid of some of the nonsense, um, classicalized the whole thing, and produced uh, more or less uh, the wonderful, ever-popular Swan Lake of today. So this is just one example of many of ballets having rather rough and tortured and almost cruel starts, but ending up uh, becoming very polished, um, symmetrically balanced, transcendent objects. And the Bolshoi is a sort of incubator of several ballets like this, but credit usually is accrued later on in time after these works have um, thrived in other theatres, other times. That was Simon Morrison. Bolshoi Confidential,
5: Secrets of the Russian Ballet, From the Rule of the Czars to Today, is on sale now in the UK, published by Fourth Estate. In the US, it's also on sale, published by Live right. Now just before we go, Here's a reminder about our next BBC History Magazine events, which are taking place early next year at Bristol's M Shed Museum. On Saturday, the 25th of February, we're holding a Victorian's Day, and on Sunday the 26th of February, a World War II Day. Both events comprise five talks from expert speakers as well as a buffet lunch. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events and there are discounts for both print and digital subscribers. OK, well, that's about it for this week's episode, but please do listen in next time when we're going to be broadcasting our annual Christmas quiz.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.